I am grateful for each of you guys and the role that you guys play in ministry, and it is a blessing to be able to dig in. This is a little bit different week for us, as many of the uh, regular folks who help us on the worship team are out serving elsewhere today, uh, and they'll be back with us next week, but it is a blessing. All those folks you just saw up in front, uh, very grateful for them as well. And of course, later in the service today, we'll also be participating in another baptism for two individuals, and then we have two more next week as well, so it's a very exciting time to see people responding to God's grace and then us having the opportunity to celebrate that as a church. So uh, looking forward to that today. I want to read a passage of scripture with you this morning to get started. It comes from Philippians chapter 4. And we've been in Philippians for a long time, but there's just so much in there. I don't want to skip over any of it. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, we read this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, Whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, there's a whole lot of familiarity to to that passage for us. Most of us have heard portions of it. Um, Some of us, especially that last verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, is one that we are all very familiar with. I think it may be the most quoted verse of scripture today. But there are many different truths within this passage that we should probably grab hold of. I want to start with a little bit of a reference. Uh, You guys are familiar. If I were to use the phrase, for better or for worse, what do you think of? A wedding, because that's that's one of the vows. It's part of the vows that we take. We declare our allegiance to one another regardless of what we face, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. As we make those vows, few of us have any idea what such commitments will actually require. The reason is because we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know if we're signing on for, for better or for worse. We picture a lot more better than we do worse, typically, when we think about those vows. We hope for a lot more richer than we get poorer. And we certainly can't imagine major sickness coming our way. Instead, we sort of imagine immeasurable highs and very limited lows. We expect God to give us incredibly good things and to limit the bad things that will come upon us. But the reality is that things don't always turn out that way in marriage or in other areas of our lives. More often than not, life involves moments of extreme good, elation, celebration, accompanied by great difficulties. I would love to tell you that a married married life will always lead to more goods than bads, but it doesn't always work out that way. By the way, I know that's horrible English, but you understood what I was trying to say there. Let's start this morning with a look at those great moments that we all love to experience. Paul begins in this passage with a word of thanksgiving specifically to the church here in Philippi. 
This church has been very generous to Paul in his ministry. He celebrates the fact that they have apparently, he uses the term, renewed their concern for him. He then corrects himself, stating that they've always been concerned for him. They just haven't had the opportunity to be able to express their concern for him. Now, the term concern doesn't necessarily mean a financial concern, but you can kind of gather from some of the rest of the text here that he does at least include finances as a part of what he's talking about. Consider Paul's situation as he writes this. According to history, the letter was written while Paul was in a Roman prison. Now, in their culture, a prisoner was responsible for his or her own care. All of their food, all of their finances, that is, unless you had family and friends who could actually meet some of those needs for you. Now, certainly the government had no plans of taking care of Paul, so it was kind of up to Paul. You could understand why Paul might be asking for help. He says, that's not why I'm asking. We often refer to Paul as a tent maker because he was able to earn money as a tent maker to help supplement the ministry. So basically, he was able to, to not be a burden on anybody else uh, as he continued in the ministry. But in this situation, he's in prison. So being a tent maker is really not much of an option. Therefore, Paul would be very much dependent on the generosity of others for the purpose of basic survival and fulfilling God's call to minister. There's no doubt that when Paul says concern in this text, this context, he is absolutely referring to the financial generosity of God's people. Let me suggest to you that when, that when the church chooses to be generous, there will always be a reason to rejoice. And that's what Paul's doing. He's rejoicing. You look in Philippians, he uses the term rejoice over and over and over again. And one of the reasons is because he sees people who are being generous and supportive. In Paul's case, not only would he survive, but he would remain an evangelist in Rome. And he would be equipped to write multiple letters to many other churches to encourage them and to build up those churches. Without their generosity, it simply would not have happened. I wonder how many people were touched by the generosity of the church at Philippi. Now, it's likely that few people really knew the role they were playing in what Paul was doing. It is likely that people simply looked and they thought, man, I'm so glad Paul sent me this letter. I'm so glad Paul is here so he can minister to everybody else. But in reality, there were many other people who actually played a role in him doing what he was able to do. It's likely that although few people knew of the Philippian church's generosity, Many, many people benefited from the work that they did. I wonder how many more people are currently in the presence of the Lord today because a few people chose generosity for Paul, enabling him to do ministry that he could not have done on his own. I could stand up here and preach a powerful message to you guys, compelling you to give solely to the church out of obligation, an act of obedience to God. And by the way, there will likely be times when I will do that. And such a message is also biblically sound. 
The call to faithful tithing goes all the way back to Genesis and it continues even today. Certainly that has not changed. I was recently at a band competition with my uh, two younger children. My son was actually competing and we were sitting with another family. Some of you know Chris and Suzanne Potter. We were sitting and just kind of hanging out and watching the band and Suzanne Potter actually had a, um, uh, a collection of poster board and she brought about 20 markers to be able to make signs to be able to cheer on the kids as they were doing stuff. And she looked at, it, at Michael and said, hey, would you like to participate as well? And of course, he's excited about it. He thinks it's great. And she looks at her 20 markers and she says, uh, would you like the black one or the blue one? And he looks over and he says, I'll just take all of them. <laughs> now, is it bad that as a pastor, the first thought that went through my mind was, I need you to take up offering this Sunday. You imagine you got somebody there with a $20 bill and a $5 bill and they're debating which one to put in and he looks over and he says, I'll just take them all, it's okay. The reality is that we could try to compel people to give and to force them to give when in reality, my goal today is to help you guys realize that we are in this, it is a privilege, it is an opportunity for us to be able to be generous to the work of God. I am inviting you to be generous to the work of Christ in the church simply because it genuinely makes a difference. I wonder how many people will be touched within our community and in our world simply because of the generosity of the people here at this church. How many families will be restored? How many young people will come to Christ? How many future ministers will be called out of this church? How many families will be fed? How many children will be blessed this Christmas because of what you give to the church? I don't know the answer to that, but I do thank you and I rejoice over the fact that you have been so faithful as it is. I wanna encourage you to know that as we give, it is an opportunity for us to celebrate because God is going to do far more with it than we ever could in our own pockets. It is a privilege for us to be a part of his work. Thank you for making ministry happen at this church. Now with Paul, it's important to realize that the purpose is not simply to ask for money though. In fact, he reminds them that he's been on both ends of the prosperity spectrum. There have been times that it seemed as though he had everything he could ever want. And then there were times that it seemed as if he had nothing that he could ever want. Now, our first thought is to think financially, but in Paul's situation here, in his case, it would have been so much more. You think about who he was and some of the things that he had gone through, the highs and the lows included times where he, he was celebrated as people loving him. Paul, what a great man who's filled with the spirit of God. And at times he had to deal with people stoning him because they didn't like the things that he said. There were times that he was beaten. There were times that he was arrested. This was a man who knew what it was to be, to be prosperous, knew what it was to be loved, but at the same time knew what it was to be alone and to be hated. He says, I have had times where I've had everything I could ever want. But I've also learned to be content even when I don't have everything I want. 
Think about the places he stayed. Just here in this letter, uh, initially the first person that he comes in contact with in Philippi is a woman named Lydia. Lydia is very wealthy. She has a probably a huge mansion to live in. She says to Paul and his fellow missionaries, why don't you guys come and stay with me? You mean I get to stay in a mansion tonight? I get to stay in a nice, comfortable bed? I get to be able to enjoy what it's like to have a home? But then as he writes this, he's in prison. <laughs> what a contrast. I have had the highs. I have had the lows. But I have discovered what it is to be content in all of those things. But Paul doesn't see these things as having caused defeat in his life or ministry. You know how sometimes we look at some of the struggles we face and we, first thing we do is sometimes we question, maybe I'm not doing something I'm supposed to do. And Paul, if he'd have looked that way, he'd have been very confused. The reality was he was suffering often because he was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. Paul was proclaiming the good news. He was loving people. He was showing them the grace of God. He was bringing the power of God to the people there. And what happened was some people liked it, some didn't. Does that mean that he should just stop doing what he's doing? Obviously, those things did not define who he was. Instead, he rejoices over the fact that these things are actually playing a role in how he ministers. They're opening up doors for him that perhaps would not have been open otherwise. They are, in many ways, shaping his ministry, but not necessarily him. Philippians 2, just a, or Philippians 1, verse 12 to 14, really describes this. This is what Paul says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He doesn't look at the negative things. He's all of these things. What's he talking about? He's in prison. He's been persecuted. He's been betrayed. People have left him. All of these things, they didn't defeat him. Actually, it just opened up more doors. All those prison guards that, man, we wish we could reach those guys. Paul says, I, I can. I'm in the right place for it. He's going to go to Rome. And as he's in Rome, he's going to have the opportunity. He's going to have an audience with the most important, most powerful people of his day. Now, I know nobody wants to be in Rome as a prisoner, but Paul says, look at the door that has opened up for me. This has served the ministry very, very well. He looks at the lows, he looks at the highs, and he says, I have, I have figured out how to be content with whatever I face today. He sees his imprisonment as an open door to proclaim the good news to a new arena. Wow. I wonder, do your extremes, specifically the negatives, do your extremes defeat you or do they help to shape you? When others speak poorly of you and treat you unfairly, does it cause you great anger or is it just an, another opportunity for the love of Christ to shine through you? When a bill comes in and it's more than you anticipated, or your paycheck comes in and it's less than you anticipated, 
Does that cause you to withdraw your hand of generosity to those around you who are in need? Or does it cause you to lean more on the one who gave generously to you in the first place? When death comes knocking for your loved ones, does that cause you to be overcome with grief, unable to even function? Or does it open up a door for God to receive glory in the face of tragedy? By the way, I get it. I understand grief. It's a horrible thing. But the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, We do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I get it. Grief is a horrible thing, but I know that in the coming days, I will have the opportunity to be reunited with those who have gone before me. Those who are in Christ one day will be resurrected. They are immediately brought into the presence of the Lord, but one day they'll be resurrected and we're told that the dead in Christ will rise first, but that we will all go and meet them in the air. We have something to look forward to. Yes, we grieve because the truth is it'll never be the same. Life is never the same when grief takes place. I've shared this at funerals, but I remember several years ago when we were living up in Delaware, we had a, uh, a hurricane that came through. By the time it got to us, it was a minimal strength hurricane, but it was strong enough to take some trees down. There was a house a few doors, two doors down from us. It was across the street, and they had a, a huge tree that was out close to the road, and the wind grabbed it, and it fell right on top of the house. It did some damage. It didn't destroy the house. Uh, they were able to fix it and made that house look as good as new. But that house would never, ever look the same. And the reason is because there was a huge tree that used to sit in the front and that huge tree was gone. I get it. When someone that we love very much is taken from us, life will go on. But it'll never be the same because there's something missing that has always been a part of our lives. I don't mean to sound harsh when I say that or uncompassionate when I say that we don't grieve like everyone else, Paul is actually stating here that we have a hope. We have something else that's much greater that we look forward to. It's not the end for us. So I ask you again, do your extremes defeat you or do they help shape you opening up doors of opportunity to minister to others? In Paul's case, his extreme experiences obviously have shaped his ministry, but they have not defined who he is. What has defined him is clearly his relationship with Jesus Christ. As such, he declares that he has been able to find contentment in the midst of these various tragedies and extreme situations. In moments of great need or in moments of an overabundance of blessings, Paul has learned contentment. He has found his satisfaction, not within his current circumstances, but through the presence of God in his life. You know, over the years, I would imagine that all of us have seen those who thought a specific circumstance would bring contentment to their lives, only to find disappointment. Maybe that's been... Your story, maybe at times it's been mine. If only I had more money. If only I had a better job. 
If only I had a different spouse. If only I had newer or nicer things. If only I had more friends. If only I were healthier or I could lose weight. The list could go on and on. But these things do not bring contentment. Maybe for just a moment you get excited about this new experience, this cool thing that you wanted to have and now you have it. But they don't bring true contentment that will last. I recently sat down with a young man. He shared that in his early 20s he found prosperity. He was offered a job working at Publix. You say, well, that's not really prosperity. But he stayed at Publix And he very quickly moved up the ladder of success. And still in his early 20s, he became a manager of a store making well over $100,000 per year. You look at that and say, well, I think I want a job at Publix. This, This guy was very successful. And one day he sat down and he simply realized that even though he was prosperous and successful, he said he still felt like something was missing. In his case, he was making money, but he hated his job. It's not the thing that he knew God wanted him to do. He felt called to serve as a police officer. In case you didn't know, police officers don't make $100,000 a year. He said he went and he talked to his wife about it, and he, he said she was a little bit hesitant at first, but then the more they talked about it, they realized that all the money in the world would never bring contentment but being in the center of God's will would. He is now a police officer with the Clemson Police Department. Gave up his job making 100,000 plus a year because he realized what was more important was being in the center of God's will. Far too many of us have sought to find our satisfaction and contentment in other things. I think of young people. Sometimes we, we seek it out in relationships We think that if only I had a girlfriend or a boyfriend, someone to be with me during my moments of weakness, then I would be satisfied. I guess it's easier for me to say it because I already have a relationship, I have a wife. But regardless of who's saying it, the truth is still here. If you cannot find contentment in your relationship with Christ, you will never truly find contentment in the other people in your life. We must make sure that our contentment is found in him. I tell you that if you will wholeheartedly seek the Lord, you will find him. And then he will give you the desires of your heart. Just know that he may actually change the desires of your heart somewhere along the way. Paul then closes this section with a verse that we're all likely very familiar with. He says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The first thing I want you to note is that this is not some abstract idea that seems disconnected from everything else that he's talking about here in this passage. Instead, this confident statement is rooted in the fact that Paul has chosen a life that is centered around Christ above all else. He has found contentment in plenty and in the absence of plenty. And now he says, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I admit that I have often wondered at the accuracy of this verse. The way we've presented it is not all that different from those parents who have told their kids, you can be anything you want to be. 
It sounds noble and encouraging, but it's not always true. I can practice for hours and hours at playing the piano, and I can be at least somewhat average, but I can never play the piano as well as what Margie does because she has a gift. She has a ability, or Lee, or Noah, or any of those other folks. Jason, who was up here on the guitar, I don't even know if he has to practice at it. He's just good at it. And I can tell people that I want to be the greatest guitarist in the world. By the way, I took guitar lessons. I am nowhere near the greatest guitarist in the world. I can tell people that I can be anything I want to be. But the truth is, there are limits to that. I've seen athletes who work really, really hard and they give it their best and they push and push and they put the time in. But the reality is, I'm not going to be the best at those sports either. Because there are some people who have some natural ability that comes into play that helps them go beyond. What I want you to realize here is that this passage, this passage is not just saying you can do anything you want to do. Perhaps a better way to look at this verse is to say that there is absolutely nothing that God cannot do in and through me. If God calls you to do something, then you can count on the fact that he will also enable you to do it. Now that principle can be applied in every aspect of your life. But notice the difference from where we started with this verse and where we finish. When we started, we were looking at this as, I can do anything I want to do. Now I'm saying that I can do anything that God wants me to do. I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength, but he is the one who is driving this. Do you understand the difference? We have a lot of really good intentions, and maybe we think that we can do all kinds of good stuff. When it comes down to it, if God is not in it, something is wrong. Everything that Paul's talking about here is really about keeping Christ in the center of his life. He, he is a servant in places where nobody else wants to be, but God is the one who's working because Christ is in everything that's taken place. People are being generous and they're supporting him and he's celebrating that, but Christ is the one who is empowering him to do these things. He is using the generosity of people. He's actually spurring people on to be generous. Paul is celebrating the presence of Christ in his life. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And what he's saying is, I can do anything God wants me to do because he's going to make it possible. If he calls me to do it, he will enable me to do it. He will give me all that I need. The key here is that our circumstances, our finances, our plans, they don't determine who we are or what we can do. It is a right relationship with Jesus Christ that determines all of these things. What is it that God desires to do in you today? What's God calling you to do? Who is he calling you to be? I don't know the opportunities that some of you guys face. You guys are, y'all are dealing with people that I don't even know. I know nothing about the circumstances at your workplace, sometimes in your homes. I have no idea the opportunities God's placed in your life. But if God is in the center of your life, there is nothing that he cannot do in and through you. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, we're grateful today for your grace. 
Thank you for the salvation that has come to us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that you did not call us to just be average. You set us apart for something great. Lord, you allowed your Holy Spirit to come and to dwell in us. And because of that, you have now empowered us to go and to be transformed and to make a difference in this world around us. Lord, I pray right now that each of us would recognize that we are nothing until you are right in our lives. Lord, I pray that if there be one today that maybe they have been so focused on their circumstances and the extreme situations, the good and the bad, and maybe they've thought that if only I could change this, then everything would be well. Lord, I pray right now that you would make it so clear that the one thing we need is a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would bring forgiveness. You tell us in your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You then promise to send your Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And Lord, I pray right now that you would forgive whatever sin has been present. And I pray that in this moment that you would send your Holy Spirit to dwell in your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk as those who truly are centered on you. But I don't know the opportunities that this church faces tomorrow. But I know that right now, Lord, we need you to intervene for us. Make us the people we need to be. We'll give you praise, honor, and glory for what you do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, I do want to just take a moment. We're gonna, I told you we're going to do some baptism stuff today. And I think uh, Aaron's supposed to be bringing the kids over and they're going to come and participate with us in just a moment, which means it may get rowdy just in a moment as kids come in. It's just what happens when you bring kids in. Uh, but I want to take a moment and uh, actually let me do an announcement first. It's something that I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, we started doing uh, square giving, which is an opportunity. Some people don't bring cash and checks and all that stuff. Uh, there'll be someone out in the foyer after church today. Actually, it'll be Richard uh, will be out there uh, after this service is over, and he'll, uh, he'll be out there. If you would like to give in that manner, that would be a, a welcome thing. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to mention is we have... Um, We've been very blessed lately to be able to do some baptisms because you, you know what makes a, a baptism so awesome? It's the fact that there are people being saved. There are people who are giving their hearts to Christ or rejoicing over the work that God's doing in people's lives. The idea that individuals who were destined for hell are making a decision to turn and to follow after Christ. And these are individuals who they'll be discipled and they will grow and they'll continue on this journey. I want you to know, first of all, that baptism is not an end result. It's not the very end of the story. In fact, it's just one step along the story. Uh, the example that I gave last week in introducing baptism uh, was with Philip, where Philip was with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he shares with him from a passage in Isaiah, basically takes him all the way through to the story of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross and the resurrection, and even calls on him to repent. Well, this guy believes everything that Philip says and he immediately responds they come to a body of water and he says what is there to stop me from being baptized right here and I almost picture Philip saying well I don't, I don't know I guess, I guess there's nothing to stop you from it and they stop the chariot right there and they get out and he's baptized do you think that's the end of the story for the Ethiopian eunuch Actually, it's, it's the last word. We have it, but no, it's absolutely not the end of the story. 
This guy would then go on his way back to Queen Candace's court in Ethiopia where he would be able to share this great experience that he's had with Christ and he would be able to become almost an ambassador, a missionary to the people in Ethiopia. How awesome is that? We look at it, that's not the end of the story. It's almost like a launching point for the story. Today we are going to participate in baptizing two young men and as we do so, I want you guys to be a support and encouragement to them. I want you to pray specifically for them. I want you to, not just today, this is a great opportunity to pray for people here because we're in church and it just seems like the thing to do. However, I want you to pray for them tomorrow. Because those kids are going to go back to school where they're going to be surrounded by their friends and some of the voices that they hear at school are not godly voices. There will be people in their lives, there will be challenges that they face. They will face some of those extreme examples to have plenty and to have none. They'll have relationships that are broken. And in those moments, they are going to need more than anything the presence of Christ in their lives. It's nice to be able to look back and say, well, but you know, I I was baptized way back when. God doesn't want to be a figurine on your mantle. He doesn't want to be something. You look back and say, well, you know, this reminds me of way back when. Every day he wants to be an integral part of your life. These two young men need to be reminded every single day that the same Jesus Christ that saved them is the same one who is going to do incredible things in and through them. He will walk with them when they go through the high times, when they go through the low times, and they and him can be content regardless of what they face. So I'm going to ask you, their two names are Mason and Tucker, and they're going to come and they're going to be baptized. I am going to go back over here and get ready for the baptism. Uh, Aaron's going to be participating with us today because he is a children's pastor, and these are two from the children's ministry. And then um, Margie and uh, Greg are going to lead you guys in a couple of songs while we get changed and we get ready for the baptism. By the way, next Sunday we have Alvaro. He is also going to be baptized, and my son Michael is is also going to be baptized next week. So uh, we'll do that. Greg, I'm going to turn it over to you for a minute and I'll be back.